You all may be seated. So I wanted to uh, say again, I mentioned this last week, but uh, something uh, transpired this week. We actually won the best booth appearance at the Wildwood Barbecue Bash. So for those of you who served, we want to say a special word of thanks. I think it was a part of the city just wanting to express their gratitude to us for just several years in a row, serving and making an impact and a difference. And so if you were a part of that, um, at the conclusion of second service, we're going to meet out by the sign holding this, and we're going to have a picture taken, and they're going to put it in the... Uh, West County newspaper, and we're going to get some PR, so if, if you want your one moment of fame, show up after the service following that, and uh, so I, again, I can't tell you how proud I am of this church family and just the multiple ways you choose to be able to honor God, serving him in so many different areas, and so I wanted to just say thanks to you for that. So have you ever been guilty of making a snap judgment about somebody? You know, you, you look at somebody and based upon what they look like or maybe how they talk or what they say, you make a snap judgment about that particular person only later to be proven wrong about that snap judgment. You ever been on the receiving end of that kind of a snap judgment, you know, where somebody else makes a judgment call about you because of how you look or how you talk? Sometimes it can be extremely painful. Hello? How much are they asking? Well, that's a lot of money for a deck. Well, I hate to tell you this, but you're getting robbed. Uh, did you hear me? You're getting robbed. It's not much fun to be misjudged, is it? I mean, whether it's a, you know, a misunderstanding from a total stranger, I mean, that's one thing. If they see you and make that particular judgment. But what if it's a relationship that somebody knows you well? Somebody you sit next to in church or somebody you sit next to in a small group. And suddenly they jump to a conclusion about you know, what you're saying or what you happen to be doing in your life, and they judge your motives without the full picture, without understanding everything. It can lead to very significant relational conflict. So many years ago, I heard this little bitty poem about Christians and the church and going to heaven, and it said this, to dwell above with those you love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with those you know, now that's a different story. Sometimes it's the people that we are closest to, that we hang out with, that we can have the most difficulty in regard to relationships and judgments. What happens if conflict arises in our church family? What do we do when we, you know, sitting across the way from somebody that we, we can't hardly even stand? It's easy to misjudge someone's tone or their intent, to misjudge motives, uh, for a variety of reasons. And so through the years, churches are famous for some of the ways that we have misjudged other people and it's led to more significant things. Now, sometimes it's doctrinal issues, right? Things that the Bible says. And we should always stand firm on those kind of things. But, you know, most of the time, the things that causes conflict in the church are things like the color of the carpet. Or should we have a communion table in the front or the back? We don't even have one. Or uh, 
Can you bring coffee into the sanctuary? You know, really important things like that. And so what happens is we allow those kind of struggles relationally to fester and to kind of, you know, work into something greater in our hearts and our minds. And rather than taking the step necessary to try to resolve the issue that we have with other people, we, we can allow those relationships to just dissolve. So how do we learn to show mercy in the church family, in our spiritual family? So we're in this um, series called The Journey of Mercy. And again, it's not really to a destination. It's more about what God wants to do in our hearts individually, but in our heart as a church. Um, so we started with this definition of mercy, right? So we said mercy is two different things. Number one, it is undeserved forgiveness, and it is unearned kindness. And it's both pieces of that. True mercy is not just one or the other. It is this undeserved forgiveness. I canceled the debt. We talked about that last week in the story of Joseph. Undeserved forgiveness, but it takes it another step in which even though they don't earn my kindness, in fact, they've done things to not earn my kindness, I still extend that to them and I give that to them. So today we, we move from last week talking about our earthly family and how we offer forgiveness to how do we show mercy with our spiritual family, with, with the church. So let me make sure, I say this several times, but let me make sure I clarify this. The church is not this building, okay? This is a place where the church sometimes meets, right? But the church is made up of those who have said yes to Jesus Christ, who are Christians, who are saved, who have accepted him. And so sometimes we gather the church, and so that's why sometimes we say we're going to church. Really, we're going to a building to gather with the church, but wherever we're at, that's where the church is. So if you're a Christian, you are the church, and so we think about this whole thing of how do we get along as the church. It can sometimes be really difficult because we're human beings. So take a look at the people around you, all right? Turn to the person next to you, look at the person in front of you. It's all right, you can stare at them. Just stare right, you know, just stare at them, right? I mean, you think about the differences in this room, right? So we got people who are rich and people who are poor. We have people who are good-looking and people who are ugly. You know, we have... Democrats and Republicans and everything in between. We have rich and poor. We have people who love the Cardinals and the other insane people. I don't know. We have people who love country music and people who have good taste in music. I mean, we have all kinds of people who are out here. And sometimes you can say things that other people can get offended at, right? And it's like, how dare you contradict country music? So what do we do in that kind of a setting? I mean, the church... As you read, I mean, the church at Corinth was the one who probably had the most conflict, at least it was shown to be the most. I mean, Paul, he really gets on them. And he says the reason there's so much conflict when relationships in the church is because you're a bunch of big babies. That's what he calls us, right? I mean, he's saying immaturity shows himself when we can say, well, I like this and I like that. And that's the way it ought to be. And it's all about us getting along as the church. And at the heart of these quarrels and disagreements is really an immature faith that makes judgment calls, snap decisions, without having all of the facts. 
So today we're going to look in James, the second chapter. So I want to encourage you to turn in your Bible to James 2. The page number is in your notes There's uh, of the brown Bible that's in the seat in front of you, or you can turn your phone or your tablet on. But James answers this question about, okay, so how do we show mercy within the church family when there are people that annoy us and we struggle with getting along or they have different philosophical viewpoints than we have? How do we learn to show mercy? And this passage in James 2, 1 through 13, it is directed specifically to Christians, okay, to the church. He even begins by saying to believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So he's specifically writing to people who are followers of Jesus. And it's in the context of church, just exactly like what's happening here today. So if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you need to listen up. I need to listen up. And so here's kind of where we're going. If, if we're in doubt about what to do, we should always show mercy. And the key today is this, that mercy is the antidote to favoritism, to this judging, to this jumping to conclusions. The antidote is mercy. So I'm going to read James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. So I want to invite you, uh, if you would stand while I read it out loud, you can follow along silently on the screen or in your Bible or in your phone or tablet. I'm going to read James 2, 1 through 13 out loud, and then let's dig in together. James writes this, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, well, here's a good seat for you, say to the poor man, will you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet? Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism... You sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. Speak and act. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Say that last phrase with me. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You may be seated. So James is the one who's writing this. James is the half-brother of Jesus. So he was close to Jesus, right? He was the half-brother of Jesus, he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, so the very first church. And so he's writing these words to a group of Jewish Christians, predominantly Jews who've turned to Christ. Uh, they're scattered all over the place, and he's writing to them to say, look, I, I, need, I need you to really step it up when it comes to living this holy life, uh, to showing others your love for Jesus Christ. In other words, this is how you should really live. So then he tells them this story. Now the question is, is the story real or is the story made up? 
In other words, is it an actual event he's talking about that he's witnessed, or is he just kind of presenting a story like Jesus oftentimes presented to be able to make a point? Either way, it doesn't matter because he's challenging them in a very key, specific area here. So it's church time, right? The prelude music is taking place, and you've walked into the building, right? You found your seat that you always sit in, right? We always sit in the same spot. And then suddenly you look up, and this bling guy comes in, right? I mean, he's a guy obviously wealthy. Maybe it was the cut of his suit. Maybe it was all the jewelry he was. I don't, I don't know, but he was obviously very wealthy. And the usher spots him and says, there's a guy who can really up our income, right? So we're going to send him all the way down here in the front, give him a good seat. Apparently back then, people like to sit in the front rather than in the back, right? So anyway, sit him in the front, make sure the offering plate goes by him at least a couple of times, but we want him to know we're glad that he is here and enters in guy number two. Like the complete opposite, he is obviously down on his luck. Maybe he doesn't smell good. He probably put his best on, but it wasn't very good. And he walks in, and the usher looks at him and says, well, there's a place to sit over here in the corner. You know, that's where all the outcasts sit, back in the corner in the back row, right? You can sit back there. And so what does James do? In this passage, he tells us the issue here, verse 3. He says, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So discriminate, and it says this in your notes, is to mark something as different. To discriminate is I say something is different. And in Jesus' day, it was a legal technical term that meant you dispense a verdict, but you dispense a verdict without having all the facts. You don't do all your research. You just say this is what that person is like based upon simple external factors. And so we prejudge, we decide, we evaluate without knowing all the details. And James says that, that just cannot be. I mean, you cannot do that. In fact, he says if you do that, that means you have evil thoughts. So one of the things that I've always assumed in this passage of Scripture is that we were talking about a first-time guest showing up at church, okay? But he doesn't necessarily say that. I mean, it could be that, but he doesn't necessarily say that. It, it could be, if it was that case, then that's the way they treated new people, but it could very well be that's the common practice of this church and this environment that he's describing here, that this is the way we treat people based upon external factors. But any time a Christian shows favoritism, those are evil thoughts. So to show favoritism is to prejudge someone based upon external circumstances. So prejudice is a term we hear a lot, right? It simply means I prejudge. I make a decision about someone just merely by how they look, how they dress, you know, where they happen to live, and it's unfair judgment. It's discrimination, right? To show favoritism, it's wrong. So there's racial prejudice, you know, your ethnic background or your skin color or your nationality. There's financial prejudice, you know, kind of car you drive or where you happen to live or where you went to high school. Or there's social prejudice, right? How a person looks, their appearance, 
You know, their degree, their religion, their position. I mean, those are all different ways that we can prejudge other people. And you and I need to know clearly that any type of prejudice, any type of judgment on a person based upon externals is completely and absolutely wrong. And in the context of the church, it's evil that we do that to one another. And so when we look at those who are trying to make their way to Jesus and we judge them based upon externals, we look at the outside and we discriminate, it really keeps those who need Jesus away. <sighs> hey, Shrek, what are we going to do when we get out of swamp anyway? Uh, our swamp? You know, when we threw rescuing the princess and all that stuff. We? Donkey, there's no we. There's no our. Hmm? There's just me and my swamp. And the first thing I'm going to do is build a ten-foot wall around my land. You cut me deep, Shrek. You cut me real deep just now. Hey, you know what I think? I think this whole wall thing is just a way to keep somebody out. No. Do you think? Are you hiding something? Never mind, donkey. Oh, this is another one of those onion things, isn't it? No, this is one of those drop it and leave it alone things. Well, why don't you want to talk about it? Why do you want to talk about it? Well, why are you blocking? I'm not blocking. Oh, yes, you are. Donkey, I'm warning you. Who are you trying to keep out? Just tell me that, Shrek. Who? Everyone, okay? Oh, now we're getting somewhere. Oh, for the love of Pete. Hey, what's your problem, Shrek? What you got against the whole world anyway? Huh? Look, I'm not the one with the problem, okay? It's the world that seems to have a problem with me. People take one look at me and go, Ah, help, run! A big, stupid, ugly ogre. <sighs> they judge me before they even know me. That's why I'm better off alone. So why does James say this is a sin? Why, why does he say that? There's three different reasons I think that show up. Number one, because it's ungodly. It's just ungodly. When we make this choice, there is nothing at all about us that's like God. Look what he says in verse 5 there. He says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? I mean, if you and I are to have the character and the nature of God, we need to recognize that any kind of prejudice at all is ungodly. In fact, in Acts chapter 10, Peter is talking about God and he says this, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So when we show favoritism, when we unjustly treat somebody else a certain way solely based upon external kinds of factors, what we see, then we're not loving as our Father loves. It's unloving. Number two, it's unreasonable. It's unreasonable. It just doesn't make sense. It's completely illogical. In fact, James presents a very significant case here. Look what he says, verses 6 and 7. He says, but you've dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the, the noble name of the one to whom you belong? So what James is sharing with us is kind of a cultural perspective. There was no middle class back then. You were either wealthy or you were poor. And so what James is saying is, look, 
The only people who can exploit you are the people who have money. So it's the wealthy people, not all of them. It's a generalization here. But he's saying to show partiality to a wealthy person who shows up at church doesn't really make sense. It's unreasonable because they're the ones that are taking you to court. But it's so easy for us to do, isn't it? I mean, it's so easy for us to make concession because of what somebody might do for us. It's so easy for us to, you know, set aside some standards because of what we may gain because of a relationship with someone. And James says, look, that just, it doesn't even make sense. So he is not saying that only poor people will go to heaven. Because if that was the case, everyone in this room would be in great trouble. Because we are wealthy beyond measure compared to most of the world around us. So that's not his point here. To God, it doesn't make any kind of a difference. Aren't you glad that God didn't check your wallet before he let you into his church family? I mean, aren't you glad that your salvation isn't based upon your savings account? Wealth itself doesn't deserve any kind of special treatment. Your value is not based upon your valuables. Your value is not based upon your valuables. So don't confuse your net worth and your value to God. Uh, There's a huge difference there. But what he's saying is, you know, when we make determinations in these snap judgments about other people without knowing all the facts, it just, it's illogical. It doesn't make sense. There's so much about that person that we have no clue about. So don't show favoritism. It's ungodly, it's unreasonable, and number three, it's unloving. It's just completely unloving. There's no love in it at all. Verse 8. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. So what's the royal law found in Scripture? It is, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's this idea of putting other people first and seeing other people and their needs first. And God's law says treat everyone with love. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14 says, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. But James even goes a step further there when he says in verse 9, But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. I mean, what he's saying is you... You don't want to be judged by the law here, but the law is very clear that you love other people like you love yourself. To judge another based upon appearance or skin color or ethnicity or even country of origin, that's showing favoritism and that is a sin. In fact, John takes it even a more difficult step further in 1 John 4.20. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister who they've seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. There's no room there for animosity or hatred towards anyone else, ever. So when we make snap judgments based upon no proof, no facts, especially to those who are part of our church family or who walk in the door, James is very clear that that is wrong, that's evil, and that is sin. But imagine what it's like to be on the receiving end of something like that. If somehow or another, as we came in the door, we divided you up based upon color of eyes, right? 
and the good people got to be on this side, and the bad people got to be on this side, depending upon the color of eyes. I mean, or if we, you came in the door and you had to show us your bank account and you got to be wherever you wanted, you, you would quit coming to a place like that. So why is this so important to us? It's important, number one, because this is a priority and value of our Heavenly Father. If God is one who does never show favoritism, then that needs to be a quality in our life. I think another way we apply it has to do with people who walk through the door for the very first time. You know, every single week in our two services, we have people who walk through the door for the very first time in our church family. And every single one of those people has a story, and every one of them needs Jesus in one way or another. So what usually happens is somebody's going through a significant transition in their life, or they're facing some kind of difficult battle, or something has just occurred, and so in their kind of discouragement, in their sense of despair and their sense of confusion, they think to themselves, well, you know, why don't, why don't I try God? And they think, you know, I've driven by that church way up on that hill for, you know, five years. Why don't I try that? And so they summon up the courage to walk into a place that they've never been, oftentimes all by themselves, because they think maybe that's a place that I will be able to find God because he's pulled on their hearts. So here's the question. What if they, in their coming in here, what if you were the first person they encountered and you treated them, I treated them, like the poor man in our story? What would, do, what would that do to their perception or their understanding of God and their desire to be able to find something that they need in their hearts and their lives? So you and I need to understand that as a church, we're entering into a very challenging season. Over the next months and years, this concept of are we going to judge people based upon what they look like, even how they behave, the choices or philosophical views they have in life, we're going to have people walk into this place that are very different from many of us. And we have to make a determination. Are we really going to live the way God wants us to live? Are we going to allow people to have the opportunity to possibly experience Jesus, who is the only one who can meet the need in their life? But I think the, the most prominent application of James' passage here is how we treat one another who's a part of this church family. How you treat the person sitting in front of you and behind you on the sides who you serve beside and you go to small groups together with and you're involved in some way or another. Because what happens to us, and this is just a natural inclination, right? So you get up at home, you've made a decision, you're coming to church today, and so you get in your car and you drive here and you walk in here. I mean, for most of us, the reality is who's prominent in our minds? Well, it's us, right? how I happen to feel, what I know is going on in that day, what my kids are doing. But, you know, it's kind of like uh, uh, I walk into this place fairly self-centered. That's just natural. But what also happens is, whether it's on Sunday morning or our small group or some other gathering or activity, there are people who walk in this place that you see every single week who have significant burdens on their hearts. I mean, just over the last few weeks in conversations I've had with people this church, we got people who have had their children, you know, go through divorce, 
who are trying to figure out how to take care of their aging parents and help them be able to still have the freedom they need. We've had parents whose kids have said, you know what, I'm not really certain I believe in God anymore. We've had people who have heard for the first time, you have cancer. We have people in this church who have just recently gone through divorce or who are struggling with trying to raise their kids in a very difficult environment. I mean, on and on and on are people in this church, and so they walk into this place. You walk into this place, and your hope is that I might be able to receive some encouragement and find a face and find someone who will help me and listen to me and encourage me in some way. Will they encounter a judgmental spirit or an empathetic heart? So the antidote to favoritism is mercy. Verses 12 and 13, look what James says there. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we need to remember how we're going to be judged, right? He says there, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. You know what the law that gives freedom is? It is grace in Jesus Christ. Only Jesus gives freedom. I don't want to stand before God and be judged by my deeds and my actions because I'll lose. And if somehow or another you think that you've lived a good enough life that you can stand before God and say that my good deeds are going to outweigh my bad deeds, you need to understand one thing. One bad deed, according to this teaching, sends you to the other place. I want to be judged by the standard of Jesus, which is the standard of grace. Um, therefore, because that's how God's going to judge me and I want to be judged, I need to extend mercy and grace to my church family and not judgment. Sometimes, though, we wrestle with that, right? We like to be judged by grace, but it's sometimes easy to judge other people by law. They're not meeting the standard they should. They should be doing this or they should be saying that. But before you go to the court of judgment, do your research. Walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. Have an empathetic ear and be willing to listen to them. A good friend of mine a couple, three years ago said, you know, when somebody is really behaving in a way that, you know, seems like they're kind of crazy, rather than asking what is wrong with them, maybe we should ask the question, what's happened to them that's causing them to react and respond in this way? That's extending grace. That's showing mercy to one another in our church family. Let mercy be your guide. And you notice he says, speak and act. Speak and act. What, what are my words? Are they showing mercy to other people? Am I showing mercy? Are my actions showing mercy to other people in, my, in our church? But I love that phrase, mercy triumphs over judgment. When I show mercy, that brings victory in God's family and God's church. So the antidote to favoritism is mercy. So who is somebody in this church family that God is calling you to extend mercy to through your words? Okay? God's put somebody on all of our hearts. So what words do you need to speak to somebody else in our church family? And then what action do you need to take towards somebody in our church family? So this week, what is one act or word of mercy 
and kindness that you can offer one person that can make a difference in their lives. In other words, are you willing to be the one to begin whatever change that needs to be in this world? Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your love and your great mercy for me. Lord, uh, it just seems like almost daily I fail in this area of showing mercy and not putting my wants and my needs first. And so, Father, I ask for your, Lord, your help to be one who speaks and acts showing mercy. Lord, will you use this church to show mercy to one another? Even today, lead us to take that one simple step that we need to take for you. In your most precious name we pray, amen. Will you please stand with me? And as we continue this time of worship, um, as we're reminded that we are outsiders, but God has allowed us into his family, how do we show grace and mercy and love to one another? Let's worship together today.